Welcome to The Conversation. This podcast is produced by QSource as part of Medicare's quality improvement organization efforts to share information, educate clinical staff, and encourage improvement through best practices. Each episode discusses a topic that is timely and applicable to you, your staff, and your patients. November is Diabetes Awareness Month, and we've chosen to have a weekly four-part discussion on this topic. In this episode, the conversation is about a research project focusing on diabetes and diabetes distress. Quality Improvement Specialist Kathy Ray leads a conversation with Mary DeGroote, Associate Professor of Medicine and Acting Director of the Diabetes Translation Research Center at Indiana University. Now, let's get this conversation started. We're welcoming back uh, Mary DeGroote to the table for QSource Conversations on Diabetes. And we've had wonderful uh, conversations in our first two podcasts, and we're welcoming her back to talk a little bit more about a separate topic, but yet it still has some meaning when we talk about diabetes and psychosocial uh, mental health. <clears throat> this uh, today is her rollout and her research uh, results, I believe, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but we're going to talk about diabetes and the diabetes distress and what that looks like and the definitions and strategies that go along with that topic. So Mary, yeah. the floor is yours. Oh, thanks so much, Kathy. I'm so delighted to be able to join you and all of our listeners. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about diabetes distress uh, today because um, this is an, a, an experience that many, too many people with diabetes have, um, both uh, here in Indiana and nationally and internationally. Um, and it's a type of experience that differs from depression, but that can co-occur with depression in the context of diabetes. So what do we mean by diabetes distress? Well, diabetes distress is uh, multidimensional and it, it has to do with the emotional burden of managing a chronic disease, in this case, diabetes, 24 seven, 365. Um, and so this can look differently from person to person, but generally, uh, affects people with type 1 diabetes, it affects people with type 2 diabetes, and it involves the emotional burden of diabetes, it involves um, distress associated with what we have to do on a day-to-day -day basis, so regimen burden, uh, it may involve um, distress associated with interactions with healthcare providers, um, as well as stress, stresses and strains in interacting with people who care for us, um, and interpersonal relationships. Um, that might be the very well-intended um, spouse or family member or church member who oversteps their bounds or who's trying to be helpful, but ends up really feeling to the person with diabetes like they're working with the diabetes police. The technical term for that is miscarried helping, but um, all of that can be part of this lived experience with diabetes. So we have learned that diabetes distress is distinct from depression, although the two can co-occur, um, and that becomes a very powerful uh, combination. If I'm feeling depressed or, and down most of the day, nearly every day, and I'm feeling really discouraged or burned out by my diabetes self-care, those two tend to interweave pretty, pretty well <laughs> together, but not in a good way for the person who's experiencing it. We also know that diabetes distress is quite common. Um, so upwards to 45% of people at any given time may be experiencing moderate to high levels of diabetes distress. 
And that's an extraordinary number, right? 45%. We don't currently have uh, any data on the lifetime burden of diabetes distress, but I could tell you that I, if I had to guess, I would say anywhere between 95% and 100% of people with diabetes may experience diabetes distress at some point in their lifetime. So this is common um, and, and uh, it uh, is uh, important to, for us to address. Um, we also know that diabetes distress has a direct correlation with A1C. So when people have elevated A1Cs, um, they may also have diabetes distress happening. And we know that that relationship between diabetes distress and A1C is mediated or in the middle of that is self-care behaviors or sometimes we use the term adherence. So if we're feeling uh, that we are feeling out of control, if we're not feeling confident that we can influence our blood sugar numbers, if we don't know what to do when our blood sugars take on a life of their own and diabetes is misbehaving, um, that will certainly affect how we feel. How we feel influences what we do or don't do in terms of self-care. And then that has an influence on A1C. So this is a really important piece because diabetes distress is about emotions and it's about the emotions that are specific to diabetes itself. Um, and because diabetes distress has an impact on A1C, um, we care about it and it has an impact on quality of life. We care about it uh, a great deal. The good news about diabetes distress is that we can, we can fix that. Um, we don't have to live in that state of distress or despair or burnout for prolonged periods of time. Um, it, uh, it does tend to last over time. So if we don't take active steps to address it, um, it will persist. Um, and this is work that's been done by Dr. Larry Fisher at the U at University of California, San Francisco, has done extensive work on the concept of diabetes distress. But the good news is that we don't have to, to suffer with diabetes distress. So the first step is identifying how am I feeling about my diabetes? Am I feeling frustrated? Am I feeling down? Am I feeling discouraged? Am I feeling disengaged? Am I feeling burned out? Um, do I feel safe with my diabetes? Is it scaring me if I have a low blood sugar or if my blood sugars are hanging out at higher numbers than I have been recommended by my doctor to see? And that certainly is not uncommon, but an important piece to be tuned into. The next step, and this is true for patients and for providers, so both patients and providers, um, I hope, are listening to this message, is we want to have a better understanding, particularly as healthcare providers, why diabetes management is important to our patients. What is it about diabetes self-management that um, opens doors for patients to do things that are important in their lives? Um, and that might not be, that, that may take some thinking on the part of the patient. They may not know the answer to that right away. Um, and it certainly is a very important question that we can ask as healthcare providers. Diabetes self-care behaviors are not gratifying in and of themselves. It is work. Let's be honest, it's work. <laughs> 
um, but work in the service of allowing us to spend time with grandchildren or to be there for major uh, life events like weddings and graduations and and um, births and marriages and all of those things um, that make may make that work worth it right to be healthy enough to be able to go on adventures that you've always had planned for yourself that makes that work worth it. So what is it about um, each person that makes that diabetes self-management worth it? So that's an important piece. As healthcare providers, we also want to listen very carefully for themes of self-blame um, in our patients. We have, um, there, there are endless opportunities for patients to blame themselves about the way they're managing their diabetes. And let's face it, managing diabetes isn't easy. If it were easy, everyone would do it perfectly. But there is no such thing as perfection in diabetes self-management. And in fact, it is very difficult to do anything 24-7, 365, which is what we ask our patients to do. Um, and we have a lot of language uh, in what I like to affectionately ter term diabetes land, all of us connected to diabetes in one way or another, of, self of blame. Um, and so it's very common for patients to blame themselves for blood sugar numbers that they receive, um, to blame themselves for A1C, to blame themselves if they develop diabetes complications. Um, I, have a, a, I have many wonderful patients that I have the honor of serving uh, through, through uh, my practice at, through IU Health. Um, and one of them is a patient who uh, about a year ago or so developed um, a, uh, a hemorrhage in her retina in one of her eyes. Uh, so diabetic retinopathy is, uh, is part of her diabetes complication profile. And when she developed this hemorrhage, she took exactly the right steps to connect with her ophthalmologist and to get immediate care to be evaluated and to take care of her eye. Um, but the first thought that entered her head was, did I cause this hemorrhage? Is this my fault? Did I do this to myself? And fortunately, because we've been working together for some time, she had enough awareness of that very powerful and very toxic thought to reach out to her endocrinologist and to me. Her endocrinologist was, was right there and responded to her through the patient portal immediately and did a, a wonderful thing. And he said, what caused your, hem your retinal hemorrhage was your diabetes, it wasn't you. And that was a very, very powerful response for my patient because it helped her to get out of that cycle of self-blame and that freed her up to be able to take the steps that she needed to take in order to care for her medical uh, moment there with her diabetic retinopathy. And even more importantly, even beyond that moment, it helped her not to feel stigmatized and blamed about how she's caring for herself going forward. She's doing the best she can with what she's got. And in fact, I would say all of our patients, everyone with diabetes is doing the best they can in that particular moment. So listening for themes of self-blame are really important. And as healthcare providers, we can help educate our patients away from, from attributions that don't have any basis in science. And then finally, we can help our patients engage in problem solving. So when we are feeling safe, 
when we are feeling engaged, we are able to make use of literally our whole brain and be able to engage our prefrontal cortex, which uh, is involved with numbers and problem solving, to be able to um, use all of the different kinds of tools, whether those are devices or concepts or strategies, uh, to manage our blood sugars. And when we do that, that is the route out of diabetes distress. So I highly recommend for people who may be listening to this as people with diabetes, if you're recognizing some of those signs and symptoms, talk with your provider, connect with a diabetes care and education specialist, a certified diabetes educator um, to, uh, to get some support around uh, diabetes distress so that you don't have to live with this for uh, prolonged periods of time. There is a way out and it can be better. I do have a quick question. When you mentioned living with your spouse or living with a caregiver that tends to kind of police, you know, what's, why are you eating that? You need to be out walking, you know, kind of giving you that scolding message. What are the boundaries? How can that person, that diabetic put up safe boundaries? Do yeah. you have, do you have any strategies or, or approaches to, to be loving to your family, yeah. but yet I need my sanity and I need my boundaries. Exactly. And I might need my space, right? Space. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Whether that's emotional space or physical space or right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So the, the, the term diabetes police was coined by Dr. William Polanski, who's a clinical psychologist who I worked with at the Joslin Diabetes Center back in the 90s. And then he returned to his homeland of San Diego, where he developed the Behavioral Diabetes Institute there. And uh, I love this concept because I, I think it really captures this idea of what is the technical term is miscarried helping. But when people who, uh, who care for us, who are loving and very well-intentioned, go about helping us in all the wrong ways. Um, and so the process of getting out of that dance of the diabetes police, because as soon as someone becomes a policeman, right, the other person becomes the criminal. Right. And criminals run away because they they don't want to be caught or shamed or stigmatized or otherwise admonished. So the way out of that dynamic is uh, requires both parties um, for the person with diabetes. One of the first and best things you can do is to talk with the with the person who's loving you and acknowledge that they are coming from a place of love and good intention. Uh, which might be hard because we have feelings about how that how their their love is landing on us, right? It may not feel very good. We might be angry or resentful, or you know, we just want to back away. But the first step is to uh, to share. Hey, wait, this isn't working, right? The, what what we are doing here, our dance, isn't working for me. Um, and then to acknowledge that uh, that that may be very well intentioned on their part. The third piece then is to name those very important pieces that um, the person with diabetes needs from their support team. So here's what I need from you. So our friends at PBS, for example, ask for pledges, right? And we always want pledges um, that people can give um, that are within their wheelhouse and that they can do well. Um, and so that, that means that we need to check in with our loved one about what can they do for us and how are they feeling about our diabetes? This is probably not a one and done conversation, right? It's, it's really about a series of conversations that we need to have and those heart to heart moments. If we're feeling angry, if we're feeling stressed, then we're probably not going to be able to have that conversation transact very well. So we need to pick our moments, right? 
um, for people who love us with diabetes, right? They have a they may have a very different set of experiences um, with uh, living with diabetes in their own right. They may be terrified. They may be dealing with hypoglycemia and low blood sugars. And, and even when the person with diabetes goes back to sleep at night, they may be wide awake all night long because they're afraid for their, their partner's safety. Um, they may be concerned about losing dreams of retirement or trips or adventures that they wanna go on with their partner um, in a loving way for decades to come. So there may be lots of feelings that are fueling the, that diabetes police person um, who uh, wants to help, uh, but doesn't want to, um, uh, you know, but doesn't really know how to do that in, in, in an effective way. So I think it's really important to, to, for the person with diabetes to really do the introspection to name what is it I need from them. And then when we receive it, positively reinforce it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I love that you didn't ask me about checking my blood sugars before my meal and you let me handle it. Right. Thank you for giving me that space or thank you for reminding me to check my blood sugars before a meal because my head was in a thousand different directions and I wasn't thinking about it. But it is important to me that I know what my number is before I eat. So it really depends on uh, what you need as a person with diabetes for that support. Um, and when we do that, and we have that ongoing conversation, that can uh, that can really change the dynamic in a positive way. Perfect, perfect conversation. All right, thank you. We appreciate the information. Thank you for joining the conversation. If you found this conversation of interest, we encourage you to join the conversation by visiting us online at qsource.org slash conversation podcast. The conversation was produced by QSource, the Quality Innovation Network Quality Improvement Organization for Indiana, under a contract with the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Content does not necessarily reflect CMS policy.